before we get into uh, to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to go back one chapter, the last verse. So it's going to be chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, so we can start digging in into chapter 4. So here it goes. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. By this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So what spirit is this that he gives us? This is none other than the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what the Holy Spirit or who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit, God's word says that he was given to us as a deposit He was given to us as a seal of promise that one day he's going to come back for his people. That is the Holy Spirit, and his seal upon us is a promise, right? So the Holy Spirit, as the seal, as this promise in us, this is, you guys, how many of you guys have ever purchased a car? Anybody? And you're like, I love that color. I don't want anybody to take it. So what do you do for them to hold it for you? You got to lay down some cash. You got to run a card. You got to write a check. You got to bring money. And then you can come back and pick up, finance, pay for it later. But that's what you got to do. God did the same thing with us. He gave the Holy Spirit as a seal for us as a promise because he purchases us. Now, when did he give the Holy Spirit to purchase us? That's the question. When did he do this? If we go to John, let's turn to the book of John. So it's not 1 John, it's the book of John. John chapter 14, if we turn there. Now in John chapter 14, we're going we're gonna to read uh, verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 16. Now to kind of give a backdrop of what is going on here in the book of John at this point. In chapter 13, the prior chapter, it's the last upper. And there in the Last Supper, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he also shares with them his betrayal. Someone's going to betray me. So by the time we get into John chapter 14, in verse 1, look at what he he says. His disciples, they're bummed out. By this point, he says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me, in God. Also believe in me. And then let's jump down to... Verse 16, and this is in regards to the Holy Spirit. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Not for a short time, not until you're alive, but forever. The Spirit of what? Of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more. That's why they're bummed out. His disciples are bummed out because Jesus is leaving. But you will see me because I live. Because I live, you will also live. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then it continues on. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to, not to the world? If anyone loves me, in verse 23, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So he's going to send a helper. And let's jump to John chapter 16. So let's go a couple chapters ahead. And we're going to go to verse 5. John chapter 15. Verse 5, this is also in regards to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to come until Jesus leaves. Look at this. John chapter 16, verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus... Christ could not leave this earth by just packing up his stuff and moving to a faraway country. The only way that he could actually leave this earth is by death. That's the only way he can leave. And by dying, that is the only way the Holy Spirit could come. So the way that God sealed us or put that down payment to come back for us. And how he purchased us was by him dying and then the Holy Spirit coming and sealing you and me and saying, you are my child and I'm going to come back for you one day. God, that is beautiful. That is such a beautiful thing. And there are some people that say, well, I don't think I like that idea of being purchased. Being purchased and sold. What am I, cattle? Maybe you don't understand the question that you're asking. Let's shed some light into that. First of all, he's not going to purchase you simply to sell you or pawn you off. He's going to purchase you to keep you forever. That purchase is a purchase for you to enter into heaven with him forever. And that purchase, that seal that he gives to you and to me, that means that his seal is going to be not for this life, just until you're alive and then you die and the seal is gone. He says that that seal is going to be forever. God, that is beautiful. That seal is your assurance of salvation for you and for me. And that is such a beautiful picture. So when he comes, he's not going to purchase, he didn't purchase you and me just to pawn you off later on. No, he purchased you and me so he can keep us with him in heaven forever. That is beautiful. Look at this. Let's turn. Uh, I love what, what Chuck Missler says um, in regards to what it cost the Lord. What did 
it cost the Lord for his creation. What, his, what did his creative plan cost him? Cost him six days. It cost the Lord six days to create this world. What did the plan of redemption cost him? Cost him the, his son's life. So if you put both of them in, in comparison, creation cost him six days. The plan of redemption cost him his son's life. Which one do you think God holds in more esteem or in higher value? His creation or plan of redemption? Totally plan of redemption. His plan of redemption cost him his son's life versus creation. Does that mean creation is not important to him? Not at all. Because from the very beginning, he had this plan set up. His purchase of you, his purchase of me, didn't cost cheaply. It wasn't a cheap cost. I mean, he gave his son for your purchase and for my purchase. So when somebody says, I don't think I like this whole idea of me being purchased. Well, maybe you don't understand the cost that it actually cost him. It cost him his son's life. Him coming here, dying for you, dying for me. That's a high cost. That is a high price. And yet the world still chooses to reject him? Look at this. Let's turn to our um, verses for tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. In, and we're going to start off in verse, uh, John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. Sorry. 1 John chapter 4 is where we are. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God's, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if you notice there, is that spirits, or it says you got to test this, this, does it say test the spirit, or does it say test the spirits? Is it singular, or is it plural? Which one is it? Plural. So speaking about more than one spirit here, it's kind of weird. Test the spirits? What does that mean? Look at this. When God created Adam and Eve, first he created Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being, right? From there, he takes a rib from Adam, who's already a living being, and then he creates woman out of man, both come together, sin enters the world. Ugh. And now we're fallen creation, and creation itself also is a fallen creation. Everything. Not the way that it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Now, here the Spirit, God's Word, teaches that we are made in whose image? In his image, right? God's image. So if we're made in God's image, not only are we going to have God's creative abilities, the abilities to make choices, the ability to love and choose to love, the ability to hate. Isn't that amazing? Not only did he give us those abilities in his image, but he also, he is three. He is God the Father, he is God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that we 
are also flesh. We also are spirit. And we also have a soul. Isn't that interesting? So when here we look at test the spirits, it's talking about false prophets. That person is telling you spiritual lies, right? They're false. They're spiritual lies is what they're sharing with you. What makes a false prophet dangerous is not the lies. What makes a false prophet dangerous are the truths that they tell, mingled and mixed with lies. That's where the deception comes in. A false prophet is not dangerous because they tell lies. A false prophet is dangerous because they mingle a lot of truth. And in between there, they weave lies. And you're like, really? Be very careful. People that are hawking and selling books and they tell you, you know what? The Bible's confusing. What you need to do is you should buy this book to clarify what the Bible is saying. Then you'll understand what's happening. Be careful. False prophets are weaving truths. They want you to read the word, but don't read it alone. Are you crazy? No, no, no. You've got to get my book, and then it's going to open up your understanding of what God's word's going to say. Be careful. Be careful. Red flags, run. Like the story of Samson. Man, he's with Delilah. How many times did that fool hear from her, I want to afflict you? Oh, baby, I love you. <laughs> what? I want to afflict you. Just tell me your secrets. What? You're like, wait, wait a minute. What is happening here? They weave truths and they weave lies. The dangers of a false prophet is not that they tell lies. It's that they tell many truths and they weave lies into those truths. That's what makes them dangerous and that's what makes them so deceptive. Look at what it's saying. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. The spirit of man is one that you need to test. And the other types of spirits would be literally spiritual beings that we know of. And the Bible teaches fallen angels or demons. The Bible calls them lying spirits. So behind these lies that are woven in to truths are lying spirits. And they're trying to deceive you. They're trying to deceive me. So how do we know the difference between what is true and what is not true? It's not like God's trying to hide truth from us. All we have to do is read his word. Get to know his word and we know the truths. Before technology got all super sophisticated and they started adding all these things to dollar bills and, and all this stuff, back in the day... The way that they used to teach their agents how to find a false dollar bill or false money to real money 
is that they didn't teach them all the th how to handle fake money. Their teaching was, let me give you real money. Let me show you what real money feels like. Let me show you what it feels like when it's in your pocket, when it's crinkled, when it goes through the washer, when it's brand new, spanking crisp. Look at all the different watermarks. Look at all these different features. These are all the, the differences in real money. They were taught how to look at real money. That's it. They never brought anything that was fake to these people. So when the fake one came along, guess what? They knew it was fake because they were always in the real. The way that you and me are going to know if it's real or if it's fake is if we stick to and keep in the truth. That's it. He says, beware, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the what? Into the world. That's everywhere. Into the world. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. John adds another one, all your strength. What Jesus is really saying here, and catch this, I love this, okay? Because when I was studying, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. Catch this. What he is saying here, use everything that God gave you. I want you to use your mind, Roger, when you love me. I want you to use your heart and your emotions when you love me. I want you to use your soul when you love me, your very being. I want you to use everything I have given you to love me. I want all of you. I don't want you just to have an emotional experience. And I don't want you only to have an intellectual experience. I don't want you to have just a knowledge experience. I want you to love me with everything you got. I want you to love me entirely, completely. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And John adds in there, with all your strength. Do it with all your power, man. Ah, oh, I love that. You shall love him with all your being. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking of false prophets. Jesus begins to warn in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He says, you know what? There are going to be wolves that are going to go in the flock. Be careful. Because these wolves are going to, they're not going to be out in their wolf skin. They're not going to be out just spreading lies. Nah. They're going to be sneaky wolves, and they're going to be putting on sheep's skin to mix with the flock. Be careful with these people, because they're going to enter into the church. They're going to enter into the body. And sheep, and it's horrible, kind of, that God <laughs> calls us sheep, because, man, I don't know about you, but sheep are the dumbest animals If, if, if it's a bird, at least a bird can, you know, if it seeks danger, 
flies away. It might not be able to bite it. And I might, it can't possibly scratch. But what's it going to do? It just flies away. It seeks danger. Gone. A fish? What does a fish do? Takes off. Dog can bark. A cat can scratch. I mean, every single animal God gave some type of a danger warning system, and it's able to fight back. What does a sheep do? (laughs) Oh, watch out with that sheep. What does that do? And that's what he calls us. He calls us sheep. Man, I don't know about you, but is that an insult? (laughs) He says, look, Roger, you're helpless. You need a shepherd. You need somebody to look after you. You need somebody to feed you. You need somebody to take you to water. You need somebody to make sure you're not in danger. Because I have given the sheep no kind of a resistance. How many of you guys have ever seen those sheep? They're hilarious. you got to look them up on YouTube. They're funny. These sheep that when they get scared, they freeze. How many of you guys have ever seen those sheep? Oh, my. You guys got to do it tonight. They're hilarious. They're sheep that they get scared. And when they get scared, have you ever seen, anybody ever seen that? Oh my, those are hilarious. Hilarious. They just, there's a kid jumps out, ah, the sheep just go, what kind of a warning system is that? How are they going to get away? This is what God calls you, God calls me. His sheep. And he says, you know what, I love you so much that I'm going to take care of you because you're my sheep and I'm your shepherd and I love you and I'm going to look after you. That is so, I don't know about you, but that is so comforting that he calls me the dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Love me. Ah, oh, I love that. It says in verse two, it says by this, You know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, there might be false prophets that might be telling you the truth, but they deny Christ Jesus. They might tell you some truths and a lot of truth, but they will deny Christ the deity of Christ Jesus. If they cannot say the deity of Christ Jesus and witness of Christ Jesus, that's not of God. By this you know the Spirit of God, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of Antichrist. Everything that is opposed to who Christ is is anti-Christ. Everything that is opposed to who Christ is is anti-Christ. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Ah, 
That verse right there reminds me of the story of Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of God who would always warn the king of Israel of the plans from the Syrian king because Syria and Israel were at war. And the king of Syria comes to find out that there's a prophet that is always telling the things that are in secret, the battle plans that are in secret. He's always telling the king of Israel, hey, there's going to be an ambush here. This is what's going on there. So the king of Syria gets upset, and he goes and he surrounds the city where Elisha is at. The servant of Elisha wakes up one morning, happens to be the day that the city is surrounded. He goes out there, and to his shock and terror, the city's surrounded. There's going to be a siege. Horses, chariots, army is out there of the Syrian king. And he's out to go seek Elisha. He's out to kill him. Elisha, I could imagine, is waking up, getting the rocks out of his eyes, brewing a cup of coffee, who knows. And he says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he might see. The Lord grants the opening of his spiritual eyes to see the heavenly forces that are surrounding the mountains. God says that there are chariots of fire and riders on horses. He is seeing the heavenly host. And Elisha says, those that are for us are more than those that are against us. Don't worry about it. Imagine what peace, how comforting that would be. First, you wake up in the morning and you see the Syrian army in front of your city. And then God opens your eyes and says, don't worry, man, I got you. All these people, they're for you. And I've sent them to protect you. Don't worry. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because, not because they're strong, not because they're smart, not because they're cunning. Why have they overcome? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So it's not saying you have overcome them because you're greater than them. He is saying you have overcome them because he is greater than them that are in the world. He's not just singling one person out. This one person is against you. Don't worry, because I'm greater than that one person. I'm greater than that one person. I'm greater than that person and everybody within the whole world. <laughs> that's power. Don't worry about that person that's coming against you. Don't worry about that circumstance that's coming against you. I'm not only greater than that one circumstance. I'm greater than that one circumstance and then all of the circumstances that are within this lifetime. <laughs> that's powerful. I am greater than everything. And Satan, man, he's good. You got to give the guy some credit. Because this guy can throw doubt. I don't know about you guys, but I've had my moments. He can throw doubt in you like none other. He can throw things in your mind and you just start to wonder, well, I don't, I don't know, Lord. I don't know if you really do love me because look at where I'm at. 
And then Satan says, he don't love you, man. Look at the mess you're in. And man, is he convincing. And if you don't stand firm and say, you know what? Mm, I might be in a moment right now where my faith is being shaken. My life's being shaken up. I don't see a way out of this. But you know what, God? I don't know. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I remember there was a time years ago when I was when I was a pretty young Christian, a few years in the faith. Now, I remember I was driving to work. Traffic was horrendous. So I get off the freeway, start driving on the streets. Yellow light turns, or you know, green light turns yellow. Yellow means go faster. <laughs> I go faster. Boom! I T-bone an Audi. Out of all cars, why couldn't it have been like a Volkswagen Beetle or something? Had to be an Audi. And guess what? I got no insurance. Funny thing is, that's what I do. (laughs) Go figure. I T-bone an Audi. Didn't get to work on time. I ended up losing my job. Got no income. Got my car repossessed because I couldn't pay for the cars. I got no job. Got Got no cars. I got into an accident. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, Lord, I... (laughs) really you couldn't at least keep me in the car so I could continue to work so I could pay my rent so I can continue to pay my car it felt like just the rug was swept from underneath me I don't know if you've ever had that feeling and you begin to doubt and the enemy starts throwing stuff at you and saying does he really love you when he was in the garden look at Satan's tactics Does God love you? Does he really? He's trying to hold good stuff from you. He's trying to withhold it from you. Knowledge, knowing what's good, what's evil. Did God really say? He starts weaving stuff in there. Some of the stuff is true. Some of it is not. And isn't that how he works? And he's good at it. He's had, I don't know how many years he's had doing it. But whatever it is, he's good at it. And we, if we're not careful, we can fall into that trap. But his redemptive plan has been from the very beginning. The moment Adam and Eve fell into that trap was the moment God, boom, put his redemptive plan into action. What does he do? Adam and Eve... They think to themselves, oh, my God, we've been naked this whole time. So what do they do? They grab leaves, fig leaves, and they try to put it on themselves. They sew it together, and they're putting it on themselves, and they're like, okay, now we could come out because, you know, we were naked, and now we can talk with God. And then what does God do? He says, leaves. Serious, you guys? Leaves. He says, Shedding of leaves, breaking them off of the tree, sap is not going to cover your sin. Leaves are not going to cover your sin. So what does God do? Now imagine this. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. I mean, this is the garden. If you were to imagine, okay, we live in the desert. I don't know about you guys, but I could appreciate a nice garden. You know what I mean? 
appreciate when, when it was all raining and everything, we have the little sandbox for the kids. I moved the sandbox, and lo and behold, underneath the sandbox, grass. I was like, look, there's a patch of grass. I, like, I was all excited. I was like, bring. Uh, I got Gracie. Gracie's like a year and a half. I'm like, bring her out here. Let her play in the grass. <laughs> I could appreciate a beautiful garden. They were in the Garden of Eden. I mean, if any garden was going to be beautiful, it was going to be that one. I mean, God himself made it. How, how much more beautiful could it possibly be? Your, your imagination could just run wild, right? Gazelles. You got beautiful waterfalls. I mean, you could imagine the mist and the steam coming up from the ground and no rain. I mean, you can imagine the gorgeous garden this is. What does God do? They have never seen a fox jump out of the bushes and attack a rabbit and tear it up and eat it. They haven't seen that. Sin hadn't entered into the world yet. They hadn't seen a lion prounce at a gazelle, grab it by his throat, and rip it out. They've never seen that before. So imagine, they are living in paradise where all animals, everything is working the way that God designed it to live and to be. No thorns, no thistles, nothing. So imagine what God does next for his redemptive plan. God slaughters a lamb. They're like, whoa, what in the, ugh. you're doing what? I remember when I was a kid living in Mexico, my uncles had a slaughterhouse and they used to slaughter animals. The amount of blood that comes out of these animals, man, I cut my finger yesterday doing dishes and a little tiny slit, but blood is scandalous. It's like, I'm like, oh, babe, look at this. Oh, my, I can't do dishes no more. Look at this, look at this. And she hates blood, so she's like, oh, oh, don't let it. She faints when she sees blood. Go figure. So blood, you can imagine, a little thing is just, you can imagine God slaughtering a lamb in front of them, something they've never seen before. They've never seen it in nature. That has never happened before in their life. God slaughters it. You can imagine. God is not trying to, you know, put buckets under there and make it sanitary. No, he slaughters this thing. That blood is spilling and probably gushing everywhere. Now, God probably doesn't miraculously say, I'm going to kill this animal and no blood's going to gush out. This is going to be a bloodless animal. Mm-mm. Because then that would ruin his picture of what Christ would do, the shedding of the blood. Are you with me? So if he wants to still paint that picture for us today, what would have happened is that he would have slaughtered that lamb and that lamb would have gushed blood. Now, if the blood would have gushed and God himself takes the skin off of that lamb, off of that animal and says, this is your covering. I don't think God says, let's put some salt, let's put it in the sun, let's dry it out, let's make sure it's nice and kosher and then we put it on you. Mm -mm. I am pretty certain God slaughters the lamb, blood everywhere, takes the skin off of this animal, and then he says, here, put this on. (sniffs) Bloody and all. This is your covering. Sin is ugly. Sin is nasty. It is gross. 
But there will be a time that I am going to slaughter my son, the lamb, that will take away the sins of all of the world. Mm. Look at this. Verse 5. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. The message is popular, and the world loves to hear it. God says that in the end times, they will raise up prophets for themselves, for them to tell them, tell me how great I am. Tell me how, just tell me how beautiful I am. Tell me this, to, to tickle their ears, it says. God says, beware. Look at this. They are of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's two things here that we can take out of it. How do we know that the spirit that dwells in me is the spirit of God? One, we witness of Christ. That's one. Two, we love, and we love one another. These are the two main things that make us distinct. Look at this. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for love is God. That is the one thing that Satan cannot manufacture. That is the one thing that he cannot counterfeit. He could counterfeit all sorts of stuff. And he could make it seem real. And he could make it weave in there. But that is something that he cannot manufacture. Is the love that we would have towards one another. He can't manufacture that. That is hard to reproduce. Why? Because he hates you and me. He is a roaring lion out seeking whom he can devour. He has come to steal. He has come to kill. And he has come to destroy. So if that is his plan and that is his purpose, why would he want to try to remanufacture love? That would make no sense. It's counterintuitive. He says, this is how you know that you will love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son. So the moments that Satan starts throwing doubts in you, the moments that you start to waver, the moments that... Your faith is shaken up. God says, hey, 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 come back. And I want you to see and I want you to know what Christ has done for you. The moment you start to waver in your faith, God says, wait a minute. Go back to the cross. Look at this. My son, even while you were yet a sinner, 
He paid the penalty of death for you and for me. The moment your faith starts to be shaken up, wait a minute, look at the cross. He paid and he ransomed you for himself. The price of the plan of redemption was his own blood, his own life spilt on that cross for you and for me. The moment your faith starts to be shaken up and it starts to waver, go back to the cross. He says right here in verse verse 9, In this the love of God was manifested toward us. How? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that, we, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ah, love that. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The horrible thing about the English language is love we say for everything. <laughs> And we've, we've heard it before, the different types of love. You got agape love. You got phileo love. And you have eros love. Eros is very a self-centered. It's a fleshly love. Eros. Too bad in today's society we don't use those words. We don't distinguish. Like I love salty chips. I love nachos. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love them all. But which one am I talking about? <laughs> right? I mean, which, what kind of love am I using to describe it? Imagine our kids starting to grow up. My, mine aren't in that, that age yet, but they start growing up. And then somebody comes and tells them, hey, I eros you, baby. Man, I don't own a shotgun, but I'd buy one, you know? I mean, man, if we were to hear what type of love are they using? And wouldn't it be nice if your significant other, your spouse, my wife, would say, Babe, I trust you. Oh, babe, I phileo you. Oh, baby, I love you too. I phileo you too. Babe, what are the differences? Eros, very self-centered, for me kind of love. A selfish love. A this is for me love. You can put potato chips in there. It's for me. For my gratification. Not yours. <laughs> I'm going to eat these nachos and I'm going to love it. I'm going to Eros it. Phileo is a brotherly love. It's a give and take love. You're giving and you're expecting to receive. It's reciprocal. It's the kind that you find in a family. Family unit. And then you have agape. The agape is a giving love. I am giving to you without expecting nothing in return. That is the kind of love that I give to my kids. It's an agape kind of love. where I'm not expecting anything back. I love you just because, man, you're cute. <laughs> my little girl, I love her. Put her in the, in the patch of grass so you can play. Just simply because I love you. I want nothing back in return. Now she smiles, and I'm like, oh, that's my reward. You know what I mean? I guess it is a little selfish. <laughs> okay, I'm human. 
this love that he says, love one another, he's not using eros. He's not using phileo. He is using agape. This love that we should love one another, he's saying, God loved you, and you should also agape and give to your brothers. Not beautiful. God. Look at this. And we'll finish up right here. No one, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. I don't know about you, but love in me has not been perfected yet. So I'm still holding on to this promise right there. His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So test the other types of spirits. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and abides in him and he in God. And we know and believe that love, the love that God has for us, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for truly just showing us, Lord, that you loved us way before we loved you. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us, Father God, that we need to be good fruit inspectors. And the world always uses that. Oh, don't judge. Your, your, your Bible says not to judge me. And that might be true, but we are to judge the lifestyle. We are to judge what fruits are coming out. We are to look and to see and not be blinded. Lord, I pray, Father God, that we might know your word and that your word might change us on a daily basis, that we might just have a hunger for your word, that we might have a desire to know who you are, Father God, and that we might be able to apply, Lord, the things that you show us, Lord, into our own daily walk. And I'm glad that it calls our life with you a walk. Because many of us, Father God, would get tired if it's a run. But we can have a nice stroll. So, Lord, as we walk with you in our daily life, Lord, may you just bless us, Father God, in our relationship with you. There's people that say, oh, I love God, as, as if they're doing you a favor. Lord, what is amazing is that you love us. That's amazing. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that we might begin, Lord, to love one another. And if there's anybody, Father God, in this room tonight, Lord, that is not forgiven, if there's something, Lord, deep-rooted in their heart, Lord, tonight, I pray, Father God, that they might just come before you, lay it at your feet, and say, Father, I have been holding this burden against this other person for years. My mom or my dad, who were 
have passed away even. I have this resentment against them. If the person is alive, if the person is past, Lord, but we still hold on to a grudge, we still hold on to hurt emotions, hurt feelings, Father, I pray that we might just lay it at your feet, Lord. That there may be reconciliation because your plan of redemption was that from the beginning. And you show us, Father God, in your word that if you love us, then we are to love others. But we cannot love others if we're holding on to regret, if we're holding on to anger, if we're holding on to resentment, if we're holding on to unforgiveness, Lord. Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, to just let go. Give us the ability, Father God, to just say, God, here I am in my frailty and in my bitterness and in my anger, Father. I want to let go, but help me let go. Like the man who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Father, allow us to forgive. May you uproot that, Father God. Don't just trim it or prune it. Rip it out, Lord. We just bless your name, Father, because you are good. You're a wonderful creator. An awesome God. And an excellent Father. We bless you this evening, Lord. And as we just continue, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you might just be with us as we go, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord.